This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to follow. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that often starts with the carnivore cures, all meat elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Stephanie Seneth. We have interviewed about two years ago about glyphosate and all the things it does to our body. I highly recommend looking at that first interview as we don't go into as much detail about glyphosate and all the ways that it is in our agriculture compared to our first interview. Recently, I got a book from all my SIRS practitioners called the Nutrition and Integrative Medicine for Clinicians. It is a textbook that talks, the first half is a lot about SIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And in it, two chapters were written by Dr. Stephanie Seneff. And she talks about the relationship between glyphosate and mold illness, as well as how it affects thyroid issues. Dr. Stephanie Seneff is a PhD at MIT and a senior research scientist and has written the book, Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment. Dr. Seneff received her bachelor's degree in biophysics in 1968 and a degree in electrical engineering in 1980 and her PhD in electrical engineering and computer science in 1985, all from MIT. You'll see in this interview that Dr. Seneff is very inquisitive and has done so much research into how glyphosate affects autism and how it affects your body as a whole and how it's causing us to be obese, have struggles with hypothyroid, vitamin A toxicity, and how it affects mold illness. Some of the parts of our conversation get a little technical and I'm still learning from Dr. Seneff, but some of the areas I try to summarize and get you to an actionable way of listening to this information. I think the key thing here is that glyphosate affects so much of our body. We are told that Roundup or glyphosate in and GMO products are safe because if you understand the way glyphosate works, it essentially kills this pathway called the shikimate pathway that is in plants. The arguments for these GMO and glyphosate products is that the human cells or animal cells don't have a shikimate pathway. And while that's technically true that we don't have it as a human cell, we do have it, the bacteria cells of our gut. And one of the ways that it is really harming us is it is causing so much disruption in our gut and then impacting our abilities to detox. And Dr. Seneff gets into so much of this. 
We also talk about how an animal-based diet can be used as an elimination diet and remove a lot of the glyphosate that is in our foods. One super interesting topic that we talk about is how hypothyroid or even Hashimoto's can actually be related to glyphosate. She talks about how Sometimes if you see a reverse T3 or RT3 higher than your T3 markers, that that in fact may be an indication that your hypothyroid is coming from glyphosate or toxicity and burdens from glyphosate. We talk about detox and glutathione and how to support our overall burden when we are dealing with glyphosate. It's a heavy conversation, but I hope you take heart to the things we talk about and what it really means for our future generations. We really need to stop using these toxins that are causing more harm than it is doing good. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Senef. Thank you so much for joining me again today. It's been a while since I interviewed you last. We talked a lot about glyphosate. I will put our previous interview in the show notes, but For the people that are listening and watching that may not have watched that interview or any of the lots of other content you put out, if you can introduce yourself. Certainly. Yeah, I'm Stephanie Seneff. I'm a senior research scientist at MIT uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Uh, that my whole career has been there, starting with undergraduate curriculum. So I've got BS, MSE, PhD degrees, all from MIT, and then I've worked there all my life. So I'm very dedicated to MIT. Um, Many years working on developing, um, writing a lot of computer code to uh, train computers to have uh, conversations with humans using natural speech. That was kind of my area of expertise for most of my career, precursors to Amazon Echo and and the Siri platform. So I don't know what people think of that, but anyway, I moved on. So along about 2007, 2008, I I noticed autism rates were going up uh, dramatically every year and it was fine. We're just diagnosing it more, not a problem. I didn't think so. So I just wanted to figure out what it was in the environment that's causing uh, what I consider to be an epidemic. Now one in 36 keeps going up every year uh, with no end in sight. And I'm very worried about that because I think our kids are really getting sick, not just autism, of course, they have a lot of other issues. And I was trying to figure out what it was uh, that might be causal factors in the environment. And um took me five years of searching before I came upon glyphosate quite by accident because it was a Professor Don Huber who gave a two-hour presentation on glyphosate at a conference I happened to be at. I thought, well, I, I don't know what glyphosate is, but let me t- check it out. <laughs> at that point, I didn't know. This was 2012. Hard for me to believe I it was there was ever a time when I didn't know the word glyphosate because I've just been every day. It's constantly on my mind at this point. Uh, but of course, I do round up. I never used it because I don't like to use chemicals. But I wasn't aware of anywhere uh, uh, anywhere near the degree of its toxicity and the fact that we don't know it's toxic because our government keeps telling us it's fine. And the government's being deceived by the industry. And and, um, and meanwhile, everybody's being poisoned. And it's all over the food supply. Uh, people use it on their lawns. They use it carelessly because it looks like it's safe. Everybody says it's safe. And I think it's a very, very dangerous chemical, both because it's so pervasive and because it's viewed as being safe. Very dangerous combination. So what is it about the relationship of autism and lots of other childhood diseases that you've talked to um, before and glyphosate? And what is so bad about glyphosate specifically? Yeah, and it takes a long time to describe everything. And I should mention my book, Toxic Legacy, which was published in 2021. Uh, Kirkus Review rated it as one of the top 100 nonfiction books of 2021. So I was pleased with that rating. Um, toxic legacy. And that was a, a culmination of 10 years of effort. I just read everything I could on glyphosate, mm-hmm. along with everything I could on autism. I, I really enjoy a puzzle and autism is a, certainly a puzzle, a uh, very complicated condition with many co- comorbidities. But one thing I had seen uh, before I walked into that presentation by Don Huber 
was that the gut was messed up in many of these kids. And I thought there's got to be some kind of toxic exposure in their food, in their water. Somehow they're getting it into their gut. That was my thinking. And that was one reason why the by the his lecture made so much sense to me. But I had identified, you know, disrupted gut microbiome, leaky gut, issues with metals, um, mem- mineral toxicity and mineral deficiencies, you know, just not handling minerals well, and sulfur problems, problems with sulfur, particularly with sulfate, was something I was really zeroing in on with autism. I was lucky that I happened to come across uh, the work of um, Rosemary Waring. It's pretty obscure work, I think, back in the 1990s. She worked with several, uh, lots of autistic kids, and she did uh, studying of metabolites in the urine and in their blood. And she was really the one who identified a very unusual feature of the autistic kids, which was they had very high levels of sulfite and thiosulfate in their urine, sky high levels, much, much higher than normal. And at the same time, they had deficiency of sulfate in the blood. So she was saying some kind of toxicity that's causing them to to, uh, release sulfur in these um, unusual forms and some kind of problem with sulfate metabolism. And maybe it was sulfite, uh, a process of sulfating Phenol, she specifically identified phenol sulfation in the gut being defective, which was really, really brilliant, I thought. And I, you know, I zeroed in on that. I thought that was really interesting and really puzzling. And then when I discovered glyphosate and I understood how it works and how it's toxic, it made a whole lot of sense to me that glyphosate is causing that problem. And not just phenol sulfation, but sulfation of anything. And that's a huge problem for lots of reasons. And and a lot of people don't know much about sulfate in the body and how it works, but there are many really important biologically important molecules um, that have carbon rings in them. The the structure has these carbon rings. And those molecules tend to be uh, insoluble in water. They're they're more hydrophilic. I mean, hydrophobic. (laughs) They're soluble in fats, but not water. And the liver does a lot of detoxifying of these chemicals by attaching. One of the things they do to detoxify is to attach sulfate. It gets hydrolyzed. It gets sulfate. It gets modified in such a way to make it more water-soluble. But an important modification that can work is to stick a sulfate on it. And when that process becomes defective, um, those molecules uh, are not able to be transported efficiently. And many of them are very important. They need to get to places. And then other ones are toxic and they need to be got, get to the kidney so they can be released through the urine. And they can't do that if they're not water soluble. So they become toxic to the liver and then you get liver damage. And there's all kinds of problems with the liver associated with glyphosate, well-known, well-studied in mice and humans, you know, toxic liver, uh, fatty liver disease leading to liver cirrhosis and um, liver cancer. All these problems with the liver are showing up, uh, rising in, you know, in prevalence in step with the rise in glyphosate. Uh, No surprise there, in my opinion, because just this one problem with the sulfate and it turns out there's problems with glutathione as well. Glutathione contains uh, cysteine, which is a sulfur-containing amino acid. And cysteine comes from methionine, which is uh, an essential sulfur-containing amino acid that's produced by the gut microbes. And because of the problems with sulfation, the gut microbes become impaired in their ability to make methionine. So both methionine and the products of the chicken mate pathway, which is the pathway glyphosate famously disrupts, those are also amino acids. So there's four amino acids, the three aromatics tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine, and then methionine, the sulfur-containing amino acid that gets the whole sulfur system going because the cysteine is so central. Well, methionine is methylation pathways as well as sulfation pathways. Methionine is at the center of both of those. And it becomes a cysteine, which becomes part of glutathione, and glutathione is an important antioxidant in the liver. You can go on and on, but there's just a real disaster with what glyphosate does in the gut to disrupt uh, sulfur metabolism. So if I'm listening to what you just said, if 
obviously glyphosate is everywhere. I know they spray it in our po- parks, the public school, uh, the the public areas where there's grass, and then we all spray it as Roundup. And then it's also in the farming industry. Is one way or can one way be us just eating more of those amino acids? Is that one way in supporting ourselves with more glutathione? I mean, can we just eradicate some of the issues by adding more of the things that it's say, you're saying will become deficient? So that certainly can be helpful, but that's not going to be the real solution because okay. glyphosate is not just making those things deficient. It's actually disrupting the whole okay. metabolic processes of so many things. And one of the things it does is it hits hard on mitochondria, causes mitochondrial damage and ox- oxidative damage in the liver. Uh, and glutathione becomes oxidized. So although you have it, it doesn't work because it gets stuck in this oxidized state. Because of the induction of oxidative um, oxidation released by the mitochondria because they become defective. And partly that's because of suppressing an enzyme called succinate dehydrogenase. That is a very interesting enzyme in the mitochondria that's central to both oxidative phosphorylation, which is what makes the ATP, and also the citric acid cycle, which is what metabolizes the foods and breaks them down into carbon dioxide and water. Succinate dehydrogenase is the only enzyme that has plays roles in both of those parts of the mitochondrial responsibilities. So that's pretty huge. When that's de- defective, there's a whole bunch of cancers that are associated with succinate de- dehydrogenase deficiency. And so, glyphosate suppresses it. That's been shown experimentally, not just theoretically. Right. So then how do we protect ourselves from glyphosate when it's everywhere. Now that's a huge problem. We don't basically, we really don't. I try very hard and, and there's, you know, there's three principal sources, the food, the water, and the air, right? Um, it is in the air. In fact, uh, my friend, Anthony Samsel, he's been studying glyphosate for a long time and, uh, and he's an experimentalist. And so he was collecting water samples from people. So I collected uh, from the rain. So I collected rainwater from my office at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I collected rainwater from my home in Winchester, which is a suburb of Cambridge. And I sent those two samples to Anthony and the the Winchester one didn't have any detectable levels of glyphosate in it, but the Cambridge one did. So he found glyphosate in rainwater and I'm suspecting glyphosate in the air, of course, in areas where they're spraying the farms. But I'm concerned about the possibility that glyphosate is getting into the air in cities as a consequence of biofuels. This is something I've brought up periodically. People kind of laugh at me and say, that's a silly idea. How could it possibly be true? But I suspect it is true. Ethanol, for example, is a biofuel that we're in, we require now 10, 10% ethanol, I think it is, in our gasoline in the United States. And ethanol is derived from GMO Roundup Ready corn. So it probably has glyphosate in it, and then it can escape into the air by just evaporating. Uh, the glyphosate can end up in the air. So I think the cities have a problem with glyphosate in the air and the countryside where they have a lot of farms that they're spraying it. And of course, the suburbs, because people are using it on their lawn. So you sort of can't escape it from the air. Now you have the water supply, which you know can be very variable depending upon how you get your water. You have to really think about whether where your water is coming from is going to be a place where there's going to be glyphosate. And then, of course, you can have your water tested. There are ways to do that on the web. And so um, you can uh, find out if your water has glyphosate in it. Of course, it can vary over time, too. So one sample might not be good enough. That can get frustrating. You have to send a dozen samples before you. So it's difficult to really know if you have a problem or not with your with your water. And you can use a reverse, um, a reverse uh, osmosis filter to remove it, but that removes everything, all the minerals okay, as well. Right. So that's not good either. So it's really, there's no good solution there. And of course, the food is the biggest one you can fix. And I think that's very, very important. I certainly have been eating a certified organic diet, at least when we shop for home, when we grow, when we grow, <laughs> make our own food at home, we're eating certified organic. When I go out, it's very, very difficult. So I do go out to eat. 
Uh, and I always struggle with the menu to try to figure out which choices might have, you know, not as much glyphosate, but it's pretty much all over the food supply. So it's very, very hard to avoid. But if you do eat organic, it's a lot less. It does come up sometimes positive for organic food, not always, but usually much less than it would be for the non-organic equivalent. And it's not just a matter of GMOs either. A lot of people, they go, oh, if I just get non-GMO, I'll be fine. That is not true at all because the highest levels are being found in non-GMO foods, particular ones that are sprayed right before harvest uh, used as a desiccant. Glyphosate is used to dry, to synchronize the um, the harvest, increase the yield, and to get started with uh, clearing the crop. You know, the residue uh, makes it easier to clear the residue after the crop is harvested. Um, Sugarcane, oats, uh, wheat, and I think that's why we have gluten intolerance, an epidemic in gluten intolerance, because wheat is sprayed right before harvest. Uh, oats, barley, uh, the um, garbanzo beans and chickpeas, all the legumes, and, and some of the seeds, like sunflower seeds. So the, all of these different crops are sprayed right before harvest. Canola uh, is, a, is a GMO Roundup Ready crop, so that's canola oil. You have, all, uh, of course, soybean oil. Soybean is a GMO Roundup Ready. So pretty much all the oils are going to be, uh, contam- all the vegetable-based oils are going to be contaminated with glyphosate, I suspect. Okay, so there's a subset of plants that basically will have, if it's non-GMO, they will have the desiccant. So they'll be dried with the glyphosate. And then there's the GMO versions that also have glyphosate. So if you are going to eat lots of, I guess, vegetables or plants, eating the certified organic ones are a better chance. Much better. I think it's a huge win. Um, And certainly we've seen, personally, we've seen our health improve. My husband and I, yeah, he actually was diagnosed with type two diabetes many decades ago, actually. And he'd been taking drugs. At one point he was taking two different drugs for his diabetes. We went organic 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. Right now he doesn't take any diabetes medicine and his sugar is fine. So he completely reversed his diabetes with just really certified organic diet. Okay. And then what about um, the water? So would you say that the safest water, I know that nothing is foolproof, but would be it would be the reverse osmosis waters. Maybe we add a b- bit of minerals back in because it's... yes, that's right. Okay, okay, that's what you want to do. Yes. Okay, uh-huh. and you're saying that all other filters. So you know, there's Berkey's, there's other water filters. Yeah, and there are people. Well, there are people who are saying that they're getting success in removing glyphosate with mm-hmm. some of these other filters. I'm not an expert, so I won't okay. say for sure that they're not. And so. Um, You'd have to look deeper at the science than I've looked to see if that's correct. But there are people, I think, who are saying, I forget what it was, but they were talking about a certain kind of filter. I'm pretty sure the charcoal filters will not work. Hey, guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Okay, okay. Yeah, that a Berkey uses a charcoal filter, but okay, that's good to know. I know recently um, in this book, you wrote a lot about, and this book has a lot of information on chronic inflammatory response syndrome and fungi and um, just mitochondrial function. You talk about how the role of glyphosate in fungi, and um, I'd love to just pick your brain about what's the relationship there. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. If you read that chapter that I wrote, chapter 16 in that book, that's Aruna Bahu was the um, editor of that book. I thought it was really, really fun. I've done two chapters for her, one on a previous book as well. She's an interesting person. And that's a great book, I think, A Wealth of Information. Um, and so, yeah, SIRS, uh, Chronic Inflammatory uh, Response Syndrome, I think is what that stands for. And it's, you know, it's basically sensitivity to mold. Uh, we have a, an epidemic, actually, in mold toxicity and mold sensitivity today. Um, and a lot of people have, they just have sort of flu symptoms, very tired out, you know, uh, probably headaches and um, um, fatigue, fatigue for sure. Mm-hmm. Just sort of chronically feeling not very good syndrome, new thyroid sick syndrome. I think there's a name for that. But there are many, many people, I think, who are just feeling kind of dragged out and not feeling like 100 um, percent chronically. And I think uh, the mold is playing a super role in that. And glyphosate is synergistically toxic with the mold. In fact, glyphosate is causing the mold to appear. I think it's, it, it, the mold is a much bigger problem in the versions of the wheat that are grown uh, non-organically compared to the organic wheat. And um, Aspergillus in particular, I mean, there's a number of different uh, mold species that produce toxic uh, metabolites. And then they have that problem that they can't get metabolized by the liver because of glyphosate messing up those processes that I mentioned, not just the sulfation pathways, but also the depletion of glutathione. Glutathione and sulfate are both important for detoxifying these things, as well as, of course, the cytochrome P450 enzymes, which is a huge class of enzymes in the liver. They have many important roles. One of them is to detoxify these products of the, um, of, of organisms growing in your gut and the, these, um, these, well, or that you, or you get the toxins from the foods that have those toxins in them because the aspergillus was, was attacking uh, the, the wheat or the corn, that sort of thing. So you're getting exposed to these toxins and then you would be able to detoxify them by the liver quite well, if not for the disruption of glyphosate. That's what I think is going on. And so those toxins become a problem. Um, and then it becomes a very interesting story with regard to thyroid. I was so fascinated. I love a puzzle. And this one is a really interesting one with the thyroid hormone, because this euthyroid sick uh, syndrome, apparently many of these people seem to have a perfectly fine thyroid. Their thyroid's not sick. And yet they're experiencing uh, what appears to be thyroid deficiency. They do have thyroid deficiency without having a sick thyroid. So that's a bit of a mystery, but they have kind of figured that out now. And it's quite, you know, the biology is quite interesting and intricate, I would say. And you probably know something about the diiodinases, the DIO2, DIO3. There's these um, enzymes that take the iodine out of the thyroid hormone. Uh, and, and there's a lot of iodines that come out one at a time. I think there's three of, maybe four of them. I'm not sure how many are in there. Each thyroid hormone has these iodines in it. And they're taken out by these enzymes and there's outer ones and inner ones. And so it's complicated, but basically the DIO3 is the bad guy. It operates outside the cell and it removes, uh, I don't know, I think I forget if it's the inner or the outer, it moves the wrong one, you could say, uh, from the iodine, um, which cause, which produces a reverse uh, form of, uh, of the thyroid three. So the T3 becomes reverse T3, which actually does the opposite of what T3 does. Not only does it not work in the way that T3 does, uh, but it blocks T3 from working, gets in the way. And it it happens, it gets produced outside the cell. And so um, then it becomes the question of why, you know, how is it up, when is it upregulated? And how is it, you know, what else is falling apart that's making all this happen? And it gets extremely interesting because it gets to sulfate again. Um, and it's very intricate because the, um, there's a, a complex molecule called heparin sulfate that's uh, in the outside tissues everywhere, heparin sulfate proteoglycans. Those are sort of the glue of your body. 
and they have a lot of sulfate. And if they have too little sulfate, uh, you end up with a uh, stiff uh, matrix um, that actually traps the cells so that they can't bring the um, they can't bring the uh, thyroid hormone in. They can't they can't endocytose it. Um, they have this interesting I forget this term. I've got a little note here for frustrated endocytosis. It's such a fun word. Because these clathrin coated pits become attached to the to the um, stiff matrix, and they can't take in the the uh, thyroid hormone. They can't take it in, so it stays outside. And then this DiO three breaks it down, turns it into this reverse version that blocks. And so, and the thyroid hormone is really important for the mitochondria. It's what energizes them. It really turns them on and makes them uh, grow and, and work well. So when you don't have enough thyroid hormone because of this RT three blocking. Um, you get tired because your mitochondria aren't working. So that, that's really complicated. I kind of tried to say it as best I could. I know it's a little bit of difficult science, but it's quite fascinating because it has to do with the heparin sulfate becoming deficient, which in part is because the glyphosate is disrupting the sulfation pathways, I think. So if I were to do a thyroid panel with TSH, T3, reverse T3, and I see that my T3 is on the lower side and I see my RT3 is on the higher side, I may have to consider possibly mold, um, and then also possibly the exposure of glyphosate, maybe reducing glutathione levels. And then also maybe I think in the book, you wrote something about the liver being damaged as well. Uh, yes. with- well, the liver gets damaged, and then you have this necrosis, which is this tissue that needs to be cleaned up. And so the, the uh, immune cells come in to, to clear the dead tissue. And in order to clear it, they have to eat, you also consume heparin sulfate. So they're depleting the heparin sulfate that's there in order to clear the tissue that's damaged. And they're not able to make efficiently make more heparin sulfate because glyphosate's messing up the sulfation pathway. So that's a double hit. So then how and do then we- you get all these issues with the liver that we see, you know, we right. see a huge problem with the liver these days. Is there symptoms of the liver being balanced? Like would I see the enzymes, the liver enzymes that we t- typically test for being higher or elevated? Would. Yes, and that that's been so shown in many studies that in, uh, glyphosate uh, elevates the liver enzymes. Yes. No, it's really interesting. So I've been doing a lot of blood work on people str- suffering from chronic inflammatory response syndrome, and I'll just run a CBC and a CMP, and I'll see that their ALT, the liver enzyme, is high. And so the assumption is, are you consuming a lot of sugars um, or alcohol or too much something to make your liver fatty? But I wonder if it's the mm-hmm. mold and then getting exacerbated by any exposure of glyphosate. I think it is. And of course, the sugars is another story where glyphosate hits hard. And, okay. and that's one people don't realize. A lot of people talk about fructose, right? right. Fructose is really bad and, um, and it causes fatty liver, sort of a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I've written about that. I have a chapter in my book on, on the liver where I go into that quite a bit. But I, I see glyphosate there in spades because, um, and it's really quite interesting because glyphosate... It disrupts the ability of the gut microbes to metabolize the fructose and turn it into uh, short chain fatty acids. So this is again a double hit because the short chain fatty acids that the that the microbes make from the fructose are a super fuel for the colonocytes. So the colon, the, the cells that line the colon, they love butyrate. They love it, and butyrate is produced by these microbes. Um, one of their sources is fructose. They can convert fructose into butyrate. And um, these microbes like an acidic environment. You know, they're acid-loving. And glyphosate raises the pH. Then Again, there have been studies that show um, that glyphosate reduces the levels of these, of these short-chain fatty acids and increases the pH of the gut. And that's, that goes together because these microbes can't live well. They can't do their job. 
the fructose doesn't get metabolized. Now the fructose goes to the liver and it's the liver's job to metabolize the fructose. Fructose is extremely damaging as a glycating agent, 10 times as bad as, as glucose. And people don't realize that. So, so fructose is, is dangerous if it doesn't get metabolized in the gut. It's supposed to. The, the gut microbes are supposed to totally handle it so the liver never sees it. But that part gets broken. The fatty acids, short-chain fatty acids become deficient. The liver gets damaged by the fructose and the liver is furiously trying to convert it into fat. fat. It has to convert it into fat right. and it ends up storing it as fatty liver disease. So then is that why you're saying that your husband was diabetic, but since changing to organic healed the gut, which then wouldn't cause the fructose stress on the liver, which then would reverse the diabetes without changing much of the diet? Yeah, that's what I think. Yes. Wow. Uh-huh. That's pretty fascinating. So I'm hearing then can this um, thyroid illness uh, brought on more by maybe mold illness with this um, glyphosate, can it show as Hashimoto's or would it just show as an imbalance in the thyroid markers? Well, there's another issue with glyphosate directly having to do with the thyroid. And there are papers that, in fact, I just found when I have it here, I just found sure, it before sure. we came in. Could glyphosate and glyphosate-based herbicides be associated with increased thyroid diseases worldwide? And this is a paper that was published, I think, in 2021. It's a recent paper. Yeah, 2021. 14-page wow. uh, paper. The authors are from Brazil. And so... Um, and I just kind of scanned through it today, but I'm sort of aware because from other studies where they've shown thyroid issues, even they've shown, well, first of all, hypothyroidism in the mother increases the risk of autism in the child by a factor of four. It's a risk factor for autism in the child. And they've done studies on bees where they've shown that they mess up the hormones, that the, even in the thyroid, I mean, in the pituitary gland, the thyroid stimulating hormone is getting messed up. And so you're having a whole screw up on the thyroid system. Also, the thyroid hormone itself comes from the chicken mate pathway. So it's produced from, um, it's the tyrosine, I think, that's converted to the um, to thyroid. It's almost the same. as It just has a tiny bit of change from the original amino acid. And that's coming out of the chicken mate pathway, which glyphosate blocks both in the foods and also in the gut. The gut microbes use the chicken mate pathway to make essential amino acids for the host, which then are used to make thyroid hormone. So many ways in which glyphosate would actually disrupt the thyroid hormone itself and probably causing uh, various problems with the hypothyroidism and probably Hashimoto's. I mean, all of these, you can get um, Hashimoto's because of autoimmune disease, autoimmune attack on the, on the thyroid, which can be a consequence, again, going back to the, even the celiac disease and the whole issue of proteins that don't get digested and end up peptide sequences that get uh, don't get broken down and end up um, causing immune re- reaction because it's a foreign peptide sequence, which the immune cells hate. So if that gets into the circulation because it's a leaky gut, the immune cells uh, develop antibodies to those foreign peptides. And then through this process called molecular mimicry, they can end up attacking the thyroid. Proteins in the thyroid that are essential for its function can get attacked by antibodies that were stimulated by foreign peptides that were in foods that weren't broken down properly. And that also relates to the gut microbes because the lactobacillus have several different forms of of an enzyme that specializes in proline, breaking proline apart from the other amino acids in the chain. And uh, we don't have those enzymes. So we depend upon the gut microbes to help us break down foods that contain a lot of proline. And that includes gluten and casein. Casein is the milk problem the dairy issues and uh, gluten is in the wheat that's causing the gluten intolerance problem. So we have a epidemic in, in uh, 
sensitivities. We have all these food sensitivities these days where people can't eat this and can't eat that. I think glyphosate's messing up the ability to digest those proteins uh, as a consequence of messing up those bacteria. Lactobacillus and bifidobacteria are very sensitive to glyphosate, so they get killed off preferentially. And then other species become more prominent in the gut and things become all out of whack and things don't happen that should and things happen that shouldn't. <laughs> it's just quite a big mess in the gut there. Uh, it's, it really starts in the gut and, and then it goes from there. Yeah, it's interesting. So even in mold illness and chronic inflammatory response syndrome, the master hormone that's produced by the pituitary, the melanocyte stimulating hormone, if it's low, it will yeah. eventually be, a, it would affect leaky gut. So I wonder how much of that relationship with glyphosate is actually exacerbating the gut. So it sounds like some ways that we can support this entire I guess, illness with glyphosate is obviously support the gut, um, eat foods that have less glyphosate on it. But beyond that, are there, I mean, should we take certain amino acids? Should we take more glutathione? Is there something that we can do? Because it seems daunting. I know. And I do think that it's so important to have enough cysteine um, that you can even take N-acetylcysteine as a supplement. And there's also liposomal glutathione because mm-hmm. you can have issues with your body can't make the glutathione. Right. Glutathione has glycine in it as one of its three amino acids. And glycine is the one that glyphosate is similar to. Glyphosate is a glycine molecule, except for extra material on its nitrogen atom. And my book talks at length about my theory uh, of glyphosate's unique uh, diabolical mechanism of toxicity that has to do with substituting for glycine by mistake uh, during protein synthesis. I believe that's happening. It's one of these controversial topics that most of the uh, experts, so-called experts are saying it's not possible. And I'm saying it has to be happening because it seems so obvious from the data that we see, even from Monsanto's own studies. Uh, And you can read my book to see my arguments there, but I think it's quite compelling. And in fact, that's how it's messing up the shikimate pathway because that enzyme, EPSP synthase, has a glycine uh, residue that's highly conserved at the place where it binds PEP, phosphoenolpyruvate. And if you change that glycine to alanine, which is just adding one more methyl group, very small change, that's because sort of the other amino acid that's as close, the one that's closest to glycine, if you substitute that, you change the code. And when you change the code, glyphosate can't touch it. So as soon as you modify the protein to just substitute alanine for glycine, um, no amount of glyphosate causes any problems to that protein. It's completely useless as a, as an herbicide. And so they've actually taken advantage of that in terms of the um, GMO Roundup Ready crops, they found uh, a version of that enzyme from a, from a microbe that has alanine instead of glycine. And they inserted that gene into the plant's genome. They can do amazing things in this GMO technology. So they gave the plant a version of that enzyme that's insensitive to glyphosate, borrowed from a, from a microbe. And that's why the plants are able to survive glyphosate exposure. But it doesn't mean they don't take it up. They st- take it up and stick it into all their proteins, I think. So you can't wash it off. It's embedded in, in the tissues of the food that you're eating. So then what about animals <clears throat> that eat GMO corns and soy? How does that, because when I did the research for glyphosate, the shikimate pathway, if you're eating enough, well, the argument from the GMO people was if you eat enough of those aromatic amino acids, it should be a non-issue. And so for these animals that have enough of those amino acids, is it as dangerous as eating GMO plants or your thoughts with that animals you mean eating the animals eating the meat from the animals is what that yeah eating the meat from the animals that have been fed gmo corn and soy 
Yeah, well, I think they're getting glyphosate into their tissues as well. And in fact, mm-hmm. collagen, uh, collagen has a huge amount of glycine. It's a long, it's a big molecule. And it has a long sequence of GXY, 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 which is every third amino acid is a glycine segment of collagen. And that's essential for the way collagen forms this beautiful triple helix structure that gives it the proper tensile strength and ability to hold water and all the properties that collagen has. Collagen is the most common protein in the body. Like a third of our proteins are collagen. That's the glue that holds everything together. And, um, and of course, it's, it's, it's uh, something that people take as a supplement. They take collagen or they take glycine, which you can derive from collagen. And I think, um, I think it makes sense because you're helping to have enough glycine to compensate for the glyphosate. But if you're taking it non-organic, you're taking glyphosate as well. So you have to worry about, I think you have to worry about glyphosate in your supplements. Uh, Anthony Samsel actually got a, a bone. He's my friend. I mentioned him earlier, I think, the one who did the water. <laughs> he likes to measure glyphosate in things. And he got a, he got a bone from a butcher and he made sure that it was a careful cow, you know, a, a cow that wasn't being treated well <laughs> in one of those farms. And he took the bone home and he managed to get uh, material out of the bone and analyzed it and found pretty high levels of glyphosate in the bone. He also got a, um, a hoof of a, uh, of a, of a horse that was put down because of founder. It had bad hoofs, you know, they get, they get crippled because their, their hooves are screwed up. And he got uh, materials out of that hoof and found high levels of glyphosate in there. So I think the glyphosate's messing up the horse's hooves, which is also lots of collagen in there. And it's also messing up collagen in our joints and our bones. And that's why we have, you know, back pain and knee replacement surgery and all this stuff that we have, you know, all these bone failures that we're seeing, all this chronic pain that we're experiencing. I suspect glyphosate's playing a big role. We have so many more people who are hurting. You know, you don't see very many people my age these days who aren't, don't have some kind of aches and pains. Do you think it's worse? And I don't know if there's any data supporting either way, but is it worse to eat like CAFO animal meat versus eating non GMO or even GMO plants? Is there just a, which one has the higher LD 50 of glyphosate? (laughs) I would like to know that myself. (laughs) You know, you would think that the animals one step removed and therefore might be lower. Right. So I would be very concerned about uh, eating non-organic bread, for example, because of the wheat being sprayed right before harvest and the carbonzo beans and chickpeas. Those uh, Canada did a huge study of various foods, both Canadian and imports. Um, It was um, over 8,000 samples of foods, um, and there's a book called Poison Foods of North America that came out of that study um, by an Indian activist in Canada. And Tony Mitra is his name. He's a friend of mine. He's a, he's a good guy. He went over to India and gave a lot of talks. He had outdoors with the farmers that all in the in the yard, huge crowd, you know, listening to him talk about glyphosate. So he had a he had a real mission, but he got his government to do these 8000 uh, samples. And um, and they found uh the high, so he had all these numbers and the book is quite dry, but it has a whole bunch of tables about these numbers. So it's really useful as a guide to figure out which foods order when you're at the restaurant and you can't eat organic. Um, and so, um, but he found the highest levels were showing up in um, garbanzo beans and chickpeas, the legumes. So um, hummus, for example, I know it's going to just really feel healthy food. Uh, and and I, I'm terrified to eat hummus if it's not organic. I like it a lot, actually. So but you can get organic hummus pretty easily, even from Whole Foods, for example. I, um, I I saw a study with organic foods. And the thing about glyphosate is they sprayed on farms. And a lot of times, organic farms are right next to. I know. So then the wind. 
<laughs> I know you can't put a fence, a fence and say, don't go here. Right? And that's why it's showing up. I mean, these people probably are honest they're not using glyphosate, but it's still in their, in their product because of that. Um, generally much lower levels. They, they did a study. There was a study on honey. I was quite interested to see. They did a lot of honeys from various parts of the world. And they had this big table, a big you know picture here of all these different levels that they found in different samples. And then they had underneath which country of origin for that sample. And you could see this big crowd of samples in the middle that were all U.S. origin. And they stood out because they were consistently much higher than the ones from the other countries. And Mexico in general comes out really good compared to, in fact, this Canadian sampling, 8,000 samples. They had samples from Europe, from um, U.S., from Canada. Of course, most of them are from Canada and from Mexico. And Mexico came in really good, like really more in comparison with Europe. Europe and Mexico both had significantly lower levels in general of glyphosate in the foods than Canada and the U.S. So that's why he calls it poison foods of North America, because it's Canada and the U.S. that had the sky high levels of glyphosate in all kinds of different foods. In your old, your previous book, um, the one that you just showed, you talked about vitamin A toxicity, possibly, and the liver. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that's a get back to the cytochrome P450 enzymes. Mm-hmm. Those enzymes are so important. They call them SIP enzymes for short. That's an easier term, CYP. Okay. And, um, and as I said, they're important for uh, neutralizing uh, toxins that are produced by the gut microbes or that could be in your food, like the uh, aflatoxin and things like that. They also uh, metabolize drugs. So when you have drugs and you've got weak SIP enzymes, the drugs can become toxic. Drugs that you're taking you know, for some kind of health issue, they don't get metabolized sufficiently quickly and they end up becoming toxic. And then they also activate vitamin D. The SIP enzymes uh, convert vitamin D to its active form. So when, when you, even if you take vitamin D, if you can't activate it, it's useless to you. Right. And then finally, they break down vitamin A. And that's important because vitamin A is interesting. It's essential, but it can also be very toxic if there's right. too much. And so because the SIP enzymes, enzymes are defective, I think that's going to cause vitamin A toxicity. So is there anything else we can do other than eating organic, trying to eat more of the natural so that there's just less exposure to glyphosate. I mean, sometimes I get scared of bringing my kids to public schools because, or the play area or the parks, because I don't know know. when the last time they sprayed glyphosate. And then when my kids are stomping on the ground, I always wonder how much are you inhaling of glyphosate? And maybe we use a reverse osmosis waters with added minerals, but are there other things we can do if we already show symptoms of hypothyroid, maybe our RT3 or reverse T3 is high maybe we're suffering with SIRS or mold illness. It sounds like even, and then if you do blood work on your liver and you show, um, have, uh, I guess, higher enzyme levels in your liver, what do we do to start supporting all of these things if we start fixing our diet today? But what about everything that's in us? Well, I think food is a big, uh, I think food is medicine. And so I really believe in eating well. And I think it's more than just eating certified organic. And, and certainly I sort of have a list of foods that you want to make sure you have plenty of. Okay. And um, so one is fermented foods, of course, like sauerkraut and apple cider vinegar. Those are regulars in my diet. And, um, and then, of course, I sulfur. You know, I'm really big on sulfur, sulfur-containing foods. I think that's super important. So we eat tons of cruciferous vegetables. I like them all, okay. the Brussels sprouts, the uh, cauliflower, uh, broccoli, uh, cabbage, uh, bok choy. They're all delicious, I think. So we eat those a lot, just quick stir-fried kind of Chinese style. And then um, in terms of the oils, I, I, of course, we always do organic and, uh, and our uh, cooking oil is organic lard. People would be surprised by that too, probably, but I don't like the vegetable oils because they're, they're highly processed. 
right. you know, and so uh, organic lard and also butter. Butter is a terrific food, I think. Animal-based fats, but of course, organic has to be right. organic. And then, um, yeah, so uh, so that's uh, that's uh, two key things. Of course, just eating foods that are rich in B vitamins is really important. You get that partly from the cruciferous vegetables, but all the fruits and vegetables are good sources of B vitamins. We have a lot of B, B vitamin problems, um, especially perhaps cobalamin. In fact, I've written a paper explaining how I think glyphosate is disrupting cobalamin. In, in, uh, cobalamin has a hard time getting past the stomach and getting past the gut barrier. And glyphosate encourages cobalamin to be a problem. It increases the problem of cobalamin. Uh, so you can take high levels of cobalamin. It doesn't, it doesn't, you have to end up getting it uh, injected because you can't uh, absorb it. Absorb it. So meat is very rich in the B vitamin. So I think that's good. What's interesting is, so I work with a lot of people that um, go meat based because they had such bad gut issues. And so when I work with them, they can't do a lot of the fermented foods because for example, um, yes, some of the histamines, right? Yes. Histamine. The histamines yes. or, um, or the, uh, some of the fermented foods will feed the candida and so maybe oh, the candida is living off of the mold. So it's all this interplay. It's really complicated, isn't it? It's so hard to straighten things out. <laughs> and then that's the interesting. Sul- right. And then some people are super sensitive to sulfur, so they cannot do any. I know of the that's a big one. And that's also glyphosate because I mentioned about the, the metabolites in mm-hmm. the autistic urine, the sulfite and the uh, thiosulfate. Sulfite is extremely reactive. And, uh, and the gut microbes, again, have lots of enzymes that deal with sulfite. They can either take it up to sulfate, you know, they can oxidize it to sulfite, sulfate, or they can reduce it in what's called assimilatory sulfite reductase. That enzyme uh, makes methionine okay. from, from sulfite. And that enzyme has been shown to be blocked by glyphosate in, um, in studies on E. coli. And it doesn't surprise me because it has these, what I call a glyphosate susceptibility motif, which is a glycine residue that binds mm-hmm. at a place where the enzyme binds phosphate. That's my critical signal for trouble. And uh, the enzymes that are involved in sulfur metabolism, many of them have this sensitivity to glyphosate. I think that glyphosate is getting into those enzymes and messing them up so they can't do their job. And so sulfite becomes toxic because it can't get converted to either methionine by combining it with organic molecule or to sulfate sulfite becomes uh, toxic sulfate becomes deficient methionine becomes deficient it's a real mess but because of that sulfite toxicity you can't eat sulfur containing foods interesting um and so then you then you go on a low sulfur diet and now you've just got yeah this vicious cycle problems (laughs) that's really i i that you know it happened to me right away when i was sort of talking when i first started talking about sulfur and that was even before glyphosate uh, because i just zeroed in on this uh, rosemary wearing in the story about uh, autism i i really felt autism was primarily perhaps um problem with sulfate and um and I got an email from people saying, I can't eat sulfur. I can't right. eat sulfur-containing foods. And that's when I was like, oh, why is that? You know, I was kind of surprised. It took me a while to figure that out. But I think that's what's happening. It, it, it not only it prevents you from utilizing the sulfur appropriately, and it causes the sulfur to be toxic. This is what happens with other things, too, like the minerals. It causes manganese to be both simultaneously toxic and, and uh, deficient, and iron also, simultaneously toxic and deficient, because it binds to these minerals. And it keeps, it locks them up and it prevents the normal process from delivering them. That's fascinating. I wonder if we were to focus on meat and a lot of times meat doesn't have the anti-nutrients or toxins in the meat that may cause more gut dysbiosis. For example, the gluten, as you mentioned, and it has a sufficient amount of methionine. I wonder if the carnivore diet unknowingly 
calming the gut, helping the gut sort of rebalance. And then you can maybe tolerate sulfur because I know I have clients that can't tolerate eggs in the beginning. And then as they do gut healing, they can tolerate it. And then they're reducing unknowingly a lot of the glyphosate exposure because they're just removing all plants. And there are short chain fatty acids in like butter, for example, has butyrate. Yes, butyrate. Um, butter is an excellent source of butyrate. Yes, yes. yes. So I wonder if part of the reason is we're reducing the glyphosate load, then we heal the gut, which then would allow our liver to start functioning better, handling the blood sugar, as you mentioned. And then you can probably add in some fermented veggies because there are some people that do better with fermented veggies. And then you can start supporting these areas that have been so damaged by glyphosate. So it kind of makes sense. Um, everything you're I saying. like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> and I do think animal based foods are in a sense, um, less complicated for us because the animals are closer to us, you know, they have a lot of more things in common with us, they don't have these plants have all these fascinating molecules that they produce polyphenols and the, and the you know, oh, I, is it I forgot the word. <laughs> oh, 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 like the oh. other antioxidants? Yeah, polyphenols. And uh, I used to just flavonoids. Flavonoids, thank you. Flavonoids, because that's, you know, the flavin is really an important um, uh, a molecule that supports metabolism. And the flavonoids can, can substitute, they can be helpful for that, but they also can be problematic. So you can just right. get issues with things not being properly managed because of the defects in these systems. I think the sulfur system being wrecked like that is huge. I think it just causes so many problems. The autistic kids, I found a fascinating paper that was published pretty recently, I think maybe 2021 on autism. And they found, um, they weren't talking about glyphosate at all, but they okay. looked at, they suspected this uh, problem with the phenol sulfur sulfation. And so they looked at the um, phenol sulfotransferase in the gut and they found out that it was very low in the autistic kids compared to normals. And they also were able to look in the pineal gland post-mortem. In the pineal gland, they found uh, highly deficient heparin sulfate and wow. defective heparin sulfotransferase. The enzyme that puts the sulfate onto the heparin sulfate was defective in the pineal gland in the brain of these autistic kids post-mortem. I was really impressed by that because I was predicting that would be the case. Then this paper showed it was happening. And so they were saying some kind of issue with these sulfotransferases being defective. And those things have a fantastic glyphosate susceptibility motif with a GXXGXXG sequence at the place where they bind uh, phosphate. So it's exactly um, the same pattern as what you have with the uh, ESP synthase, which is the one glyphosate, glyphosate famously disrupts. I'm going to ask a question that's super controversial, but I'm going to ask it in a way that hopefully this the video doesn't get kicked off YouTube. But um, <laughs> so there are thoughts about autism happening with external things we put in our babies when they're very young. Is there a relationship with that? Yeah, that's really hard to do. But yes, I do think so. I think glyphosate, okay. actually, I have a paper on glyphosate and aluminum that um, in the okay. pineal gland, in fact, the pineal gland actually is an attractor of aluminum. It has, if you look at the mm -hmm. aluminum level in the pineal gland versus other parts of the brain, it's high. And glyphosate binds to aluminum. There's an, a theoretical paper that showed two glyphosate molecules will wrap around an aluminum atom and hide its plus three charge. So aluminum wow. is, you know, has, uh, has a plus, plus three charge which is, uh, makes it hard for it to get past the gut barrier. But when you wrap it up with a couple of glyphosate molecules, it's a neutral, it's a neutral molecule and it can more easily get past the leaky gut. And then glyphosate creates a leaky gut. So it, uh, it escorts the aluminum, it carries the aluminum, I think, to the um, terminal watershed of the, of, the, of the circulation, which is to say the, the brainstem, you know, the pineal gland is at a place where um, 
the water, uh, the, the blood sort of equilibrates with other fluids, like you've got the salivary glands, the tears, you know, the sweat. I mean, just sort of, um, so it's, a high, it's more acidic. So when it becomes more acidic, that's true for the uh, urine as well. In the kidneys and in the brainstem, the, uh, the blood is more acidic. And it's in acidic environments that glyphosate lets go. So glyphosate holds on to minerals if the pH is high and drops those minerals when the pH falls. And so glyphosate, I think, unloads the aluminum in the, uh, in the brainstem. And then both the aluminum and the glyphosate become very toxic to the brain. I, 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 this is theoretical, um, but I think that might be part of what's going on. So glyphosate makes aluminum more toxic um, than it would otherwise be. What's interesting is um, lately we've been doing heavy metal testing on some of the people. And so we're just seeing the acute versions in the blood, not in the cells. And we are seeing heavier levels of aluminum. And I'll ask my clients, are you drinking sodas? Are you using aluminum foil? And they're not doing it. So it's mm. just, we're like, maybe it's in the water, but maybe it's some of the stuff you mentioned too. That's some of these. Super <laughs> fascinating. <Right. laughs> I heard this year that a uh, bear who now owns Roundup from Monsanto, that they're going to remove, or they have committed to removing all glyphosate in Roundup and all the home care products. Is that hopeful? Is there something else that they're, you know, like a different chemical that they're going to use? What are your thoughts with this? I mean, I, and I think they owe billions of dollars with legal cases as well. Yes. And so let me just say a bit about that, because that was non Hodgkin's lymphoma. And it was very exciting when this um, Dwayne Lee Johnson, uh, right, he was a, right. a, a school groundskeeper in California, and he developed non Hodgkin's lymphoma, I think in his early 40s. He had young children. Oh. Uh, it was terrible. And they just basically gave them the runaround that they were not at all supportive. And, um, and he sued them. Um, and he won. It was so exciting. I still remember the moment when I heard I could not believe it, because you always think, oh, they can just throw a lot of money at the problem, they can get out of, it. you know, he won. And then that really set off a cascade. So there were two other um, big lawsuits that followed where there were also big wins. And it was millions of dollars. These people got very one, I think it was a billion dollars. So initially the um, jury awarded a very large amount and then they, um, and then the judge cut it way back. So that's, I guess that's how these things work. But, um, um, but there were these three major lawsuits and now there's like tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people waiting in the wings to get their day in court. It's pretty terrifying for for Bayer. <laughs> and I don't think it was interesting because it was really after Bayer took over that um, that these lawsuits broke through. And it might be that Monsanto was very highly skilled at with the legal uh, expertise to get her out of these problems. But Bayer probably maybe didn't realize how important it was to make sure these lawsuits don't get through. And um, but that's really great because then they, Bayer decided and they, they sort of saw the residential people were the ones who were suing. The farmers, of course, are heavily exposed, but they're exposed to so many other chemicals that you can usually you can't you can win the case. If you're the chemical, you know, if you're the one who's producing the chemical that they're claiming caused their disease, you say, no, it's not us. It's those other guys. You know, they, they use that as a trick to get out of it. So they're not so worried about the farmers because of that. <laughs> right, that makes sense. Residential. So they did say that I was really excited and I do expect they'll do something else, you know, glufosinate or um, dicamba or. There's all kinds of other uh, herbicides that I think are just as bad. Right. Glyphosate is the worst, mostly because it's so common and because it's viewed as being safe. Um, they'll just swap it out for something else that's also damaging in ways that we don't know yet, but we'll find out because we'll get new kinds of diseases showing up if we start using those. So I'm hoping, I mean, I really want the population to wake up and realize we have to stop using these chemicals, period. I, I want to see glyphosate banned worldwide. And I'd love to see all the herbicides banned worldwide, because I don't think any, all of the 
chemical herbicides. And there are ways to control weeds, you know, that involve safer methods that are natural. And, and that's really the way we, we can do. Always, of course, pulling weeds by hand, which is very expensive because it requires a lot of human labor. But there's some interesting work going on in robotics with building these fancy tractors that are, um, they can be solar driven, you know, solar powered and automatically uh, self-guiding. And they have vision, recognize what a weed is. And then they have something like boiling water that they can shoot at the weed to kill it. So something like that seems really exciting to me. I'm hoping that if we decide, if we can make a decision not to use these chemicals, we're smart enough to figure out how to do that, how to do it well and how to do it economically, I think. And we need to do that. We desperately need to need to do that. I mean, I can understand why the weed problem is huge. And we don't use any sprays in our house, too. And so whenever there's a bunch of weeds, my husband will always say, you sure you don't want to use a spray? And I'm like, I'm absolutely <laughs> sure my kids go in the um, the outside, the dirt and stuff. So I absolutely don't want to use it. But I see how quickly they grow. So I totally understand that. Yeah. Is there more use of glyphosate in homes um, than the farms and the foods? Or is it Equal. That's a, a good question. I don't have an easy answer right. for that. I think it's hard to actually know how much is being used right. in the homes. Um, I think it's probably uh, more in the in agriculture than in the homes, okay. but I'm, I'm not sure. They use a lot higher concentration. Um, they have a huge amount of space that they're trying to kill off weeds in. So I suspect there's more in the agriculture. And of course, because we eat the food, we don't eat the grass. So it sort right. of have a more direct uh, exposure that way. So I think the food, you know, it was funny because when I first started studying glyphosate, I was very concerned about trying to figure out exactly which, you know, of these possible ways of getting exposed are the most important. And it's hard to know, but it feels like autism, you know, um, people who live near highways have increased risk to autism. Um, Why is that? I suspect it's glyphosate in the air uh, in the highways because of the fumes from the uh, ethanol and from okay. the other oh, biofuels. Right, right. That's what I suspect, but that's not what they're saying. <laughs> they, they, and there's other toxic chemicals in those fumes as well. So generally just toxic chemical exposures uh, are killing us. And uh, I really wish we could get back to a time when there was no such thing as a chemical, like everything is natural, you know, we, right. we create all these interesting and dangerous chemicals that we don't understand. And, and we don't, um, we seem to have a cavalier attitude of what could go wrong, but there's a lot that can go wrong and you don't know it until many years later. It takes a long time to figure it out. And people are definitely sick. And I think they're getting sicker every day, not just the autism, but the obesity. Right. I think obesity is directly linked to, to glyphosate. I find that every country, when they start adopting a Western diet, processed foods from the West, they start getting fat. You know, it's quite striking. In South Africa, for example, there's an obesity problem. Mm-hmm. Most of Africa does not have an obesity problem, just South Africa and the Mediterranean uh, coast. And the Mediterranean people, they have desert. They, they import a lot of processed foods from, from the West. And South Africa is very heavily into, uh, into glyphosate and, and GMO foods. So I think it makes sense. The countries that use a lot of glyphosate have a huge obesity problem. There's a huge gap between those countries and the rest of the countries in Africa, as far as obesity is concerned. So if a country had corn that wasn't GMO or non-GMO, but the organic version, and then there's people that just eat the the GMO, the non-GMO versions. So one sprayed with glyphosate, one is ideally not, they won't have as much, but they're eating the same amounts of the corn. Do you think that the people that are eating the organic versions would be less fat? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do. Yeah. I think glyphosate and one of the ways in which glyphosate can be causing obesity, I think is because of 
It's disruption of the ability to detoxify fat-soluble chemicals. Actually, it's not fat-soluble. But because you can't break down, you can't make these chemicals uh, water-soluble, you have to either stuff them in the fat tissues or get exposed. And so the fat becomes a trap for uh, toxic chemicals. And if you go on an extreme diet and lose a lot of pounds in a hurry, you're going to release all those chemicals into your body and they're going to make you sick. So I think it's, you know, almost dangerous to go on an extreme diet, which is sad, really. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, even mold illness works the same way. So the biotoxins accumulate in your fat because it can't release. So sometimes people are really overweight because they're sick. It's not just that they're overeating all the time. I mean, their leptin receptors can absolutely be in balance, but it is so interesting to think about because everyone in the wellness space understands that all of a sudden around this, I think eighties, the early eighties that all of a sudden obesity shot up and everyone's blaming the sugar, the flour, the soy. But I think it's more than that. Obviously there were the childhood medications also increased during that time too. I'm not (laughs) going to say more than that. And then, and then, so, and then people always wonder why is mold illness more prevalent now when we've always, you know, have been surrounded by mycotoxins and mold too. And I just think it's, maybe some of the glyphosate just being so rampant and even the forever chemicals that are in our water as well. It's just making us so sick. Right. I think you're absolutely right. And that's a good example because the toxic uh, uh, phenols, the, the, the yeah. um, metabolites from the, from the, um, from the aspergillus and whatnot um, are, are, have this problem not being able to be metabolized because of the glyphosate. So they get stuffed into the fat. That's a good example of things that the fat cells might be storing. Right. Um, and there's other toxic uh, herbicides and whatnot that are also fat soluble and insecticides. I mean, all those things are getting um, st- shoved, shoved into the fat, which is a great place to hide it to keep yourself safe. And I think some people's metabolism and the genetics is just such that um, their body has learned how to do this as a way to keep uh, stay healthy. So I think it can be dangerous to lose weight. It's really sad. But I think in a way you're uh, you need to be fat in today's world. Right in order to be safe, you know, which is really sad, really well, sad. I think what you're, the work you're doing is so important to have people understand how bad glyphosate is, whether it's in our water, our air, and especially in our foods. And um, I think organic is one way to support not being as exposed to glyphosate, but we really need to stop spraying. I, I do think about that. So I know our neighbors, I, there was a period I was going on walks every day and I would see neighbors spraying with their little spray things. And I know that it's something not ideal. And so I I would walk across the street, but I know that it's in the air now. And I just think when it rains, it runs off too. And it's just, I can be one person that will stop using these things, but really it's the collection of all of us that really need to stop this so that uh, we, we don't have all of these problems and all these health conditions, like chronic illness is becoming so common and so normalized. And it's, it ne- it's never been the case that way in human history. I know. I really am fascinated by the ability of humans to adapt to a new normal yeah. where we have all these high autism rates. Autism is being portrayed as another way to be normal. It's just another variant of being human. I mean, I think it's just really interesting that we can uh, adapt to just uh, believing that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, you know, we don't even remember what it was like when we didn't have all these obese people. We didn't have all these people who walking right. with a cane or in a wheelchair because of their aches and pains, they get their back, is, you know, just uh, agony. Um, all these people living in agony, especially as they get older. I see I so many people just barely able to walk. It's so sad. And uh, 
we think that's normal. Whereas back when I was a kid, I just don't remember seeing even old people were perfectly capable of walking around, you know, it's so um, sad to see. And I, I think we just don't realize what a big sacrifice we've made uh, in the interest of making agriculture more efficient and food cheaper. I mean, I just think it's been a huge mistake and we don't seem to be able to connect those dots um, as a, as a nation or as a, as a, as a species, we don't seem to be able to recognize what we're doing to ourselves and how much better off we would be if we would just stop doing it. I think it's, so sad. I, I really I wish I could wake up 100, 200 years from now and see a different world where people finally have realized we can't do it, you know, and just got, go back to nature. Yeah, I just want to add two things to what you said. So one, obviously, it's so important that you're sharing this message so that some of us do wake up. And I think it's just more and more people share just even one neighbor that will improve a lot of this. A lot of why I share is I have two young boys and the way that I see the world is going, it terrifies me. I and I don't, I don't want them to be the lone wolves that are searching for meat um, so that they can be healthy. And I'd rather that most of the world will eat it. So a couple things I was just going to bring up is we're also being recommended to reduce our proteins from animal meats. And uh, you see osteoporosis and uh, women older that fall and then never can walk again and then never, and some of them die from just a hip replacement but if they ate enough protein and kept their muscle mass, that would never happen. And then additionally, with, from a nutritional perspective, we are told to eat low fat. Mm -hmm. A lot of our sex hormones are produced from cholesterol and That's the breakdown right. of that. So you need your gut health and all of that. But if you eat less fat, you have less cholesterol to come and support the other areas. If we're sick or we are tapping on cortisol so much, then all of the cholesterol we produce inside our body will go mostly to cortisol but then what about all the sex hormones that need that support? But instead of having our kids eat animal fats and butter and lard, they're eating low fat, toxic, inflammatory seed oils. And then I want it's it, to me, it's not a surprise where they're not getting enough sex hormone nutrients that then can affect this as well. I just yes. think there's so much to play. It's our nutrition's broken. The toxins that we're adding to our toxic soup of everything is so broken, we're adding more medications when kids are really young to play. And it's yeah, I, I think it's if we don't wake up, I cannot imagine my children's generation when they're older. And that really scares me. I agree. I, I really think that if I were a young woman today, I would really hesitate to have kids at all, yeah. because I'd be so worried about their future. I hate to say that. And I yeah. love kids, you know, I really love kids. And I just feel so heartbroken for them, this generation. And it's my generation's fault. I lay the blame on us. And I feel really bad about that. Yeah, no, I understand. I told my husband that the best thing to do for our children or when our, when we didn't have children was to not have them. And I, it sounds so dark, but I mean, this world is hard. And I just from a, if my children are not born, then they don't have to go through the grief of this world. But there's also beauty in having children. So it's just this fine struggle. But, and the, our love obviously produced children, but it is hard. Um, it's a big reason I advocate. I hope that my children have a fighting future and the way yes, things are going. Enough other people besides your kids yes. are aware so that they yes. work hard to change things. And uh, there is a movement and I think it's good. I think there are many people who are working hard on sustainable, regenerative yes. agriculture, how to make that efficient and uh, costly, cost effective, you know, and if we can do that, we won't, uh, nobody would want to uh, buy the non-GMO if they could, I mean, to buy the GMO non-organic food, if they could buy the organic food at the same price, you know, right. 
I totally agree. Agree. Thank you so much for your time. Where can people, well, I got this book off Amazon, but I don't know if they sell it anywhere else. Sometimes I think it's better yeah, I don't know about that book. Yeah. I'm impressed that you have it because I know it's not cheap. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's good. Well, I focus on SIRS and half of the book is on SIRS. So it's yes, just been super yes. fascinating. That's I, great. And this is my other book, Toxic Legacy, yeah. which is available on Amazon and other places. I have my, uh, webpage stephaniecenter.net and you can go stephaniecenter.net slash book and there's a bunch of other links to various uh, companies uh publishers that publish that book and then are all of your talks on your page as well not all no okay okay, okay. <laughs> no, but i have some links there to some some of my i select selectively i have links to uh, papers and talks and i also have my uh my webpage at mit which you might want to put up on there too okay i'll put all of it in the show notes thank you so much um i think your research is so forward thinking and i think it's so important to discuss this when i was in college we would drive from Los Angeles to Berkeley and we would see the CAFOs and all the, you could literally see the air is grayer in that area. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and then we would talk a lot about GMOs and everyone thought like, I'm crazy to t- think about it because it's feeding more people. And so the logic right. made sense to think that way, but now fast forward so many years and people are really sick from these foods. And so I'm, right. it's people like you that share this content that is helping move the education of GMOs are not ideal for us. And so thank you for all that. Thank you. Yes, I agree with you. It's so um, it has been such an easy message to say, feed the world. We can't feed the world without this. And that's just not true. It's just not true. I don't think so. Well, thank you. And it comes with like a bar- a burden, a, such a heavy burden of people being sick and fat. Yes. And, and think unwell. of all the people that have to spend their time taking care of all the sick people. That's not fun. You know, that's not a, a good way to spend your time. Well, thank you so much again. Um, I will put all your information in the show notes, but thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was fun. Okay, guys, I know that this was a sobering conversation, but I hope you learned a lot about it. I think one of the reasons why I don't like giving my kids a lot of plant-based foods is just from this glyphosate conversation alone. We can feed our children organic foods, but there still is a risk that the farm that's next door to it is GMO or non-GMO and using these desiccants. And the organic farms can't really handle that load. It's almost impossible to be away from glyphosates, especially in our water and our air. But one way we can support that is by eating foods that strengthen our gut. And one way we do that is with meats. So as much as fiber is considered so beneficial because of its short chain fatty acids, or because of all of the benefits it does for our microbiome, if it's filled with glyphosate, it's actually doing the opposite of supporting your gut. And so with all the research, if you take into consideration all these nuances, maybe this is another reason or glyphosate is another reason that plant-based foods are not ideal. Maybe in moderation, absolutely organic. But when it comes to these nuances, it just is sobering why animal-based foods are just ideal overall. If you are suffering from hypothyroid or if you're suffering from mold illness, you just may want to also take an extra measure of reducing any exposures to glyphosate. Dr. Senef talked to me offline and mentioned that in Hawaii now they're going to have a law where they cannot spray any glyphosate at public parks. So we are making small wins over time and I hope that we continue to get this knowledge out there so we can stop spraying glyphosate in public schools as well as public parks. I know that these conversations can sometimes be super heavy, but what I want you to really take away from this is that knowledge is power. So it's not about, oh my gosh, there's so much glyphosate everywhere. All our water is toxic. All our foods are toxic. There's just no point in living. Instead of thinking that way, 
think about, okay, I know that glyphosate is not ideal. So I will do what I can to limit the amounts. Again, as Dr. Senef said, it's really impossible to remove yourself from it completely, but we can do measures to support ourselves. And one way that she talks about how to support ourselves from glyphosate is to heal your gut function, which oftentimes carnivore does, and then get enough of those aromatic amino acids, including methionine, which is in abundance and the B vitamins, which is in abundance in meats. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.